0: Hello there. How's it going? Hope you're doing well. And more importantly, thanks for tuning in to the fourth episode of Enlighten, the science podcast. Crikey, there's a lot on at the moment, isn't there? The Olympics and Love Island? I can barely handle it. This is the second episode in our two-part Olympic special. During these sessions, we've been asking the question, are we reaching the limits of human sporting performance? Our first episode with Dr. Simon Goodwill and Professor Steve Hake was released earlier this month and it's available to stream as soon as you finish this one. During this episode, Patricia Kloyhofer and I spoke to Dr. Alan Williams of Manchester Metropolitan University about the effect that genetics have on sporting achievement. Dr. Williams is the director of the Sports Genomics Laboratory and is a reader in sport and exercise genomics at Manchester Metropolitan University. He's also an honorary senior research associate at University College London. We discussed how people are genetically predisposed to win, about how to find genes that predispose success, and about whether we'll see genetic testing as a predictor for who is a future Olympian. There's so many different avenues to go down here, it's a massive subject, and to be honest, I feel like I could have quite happily talked about this for hours. I should mention, we briefly touch on Alan's role as an expert witness in Castor Semenya's appeal against the International Association of Athletics Federation, related to her ban from competing in certain types of events. We do discuss this briefly, but it's a complex topic and was somewhat out of scope for our discussion, so we didn't really go into depth on it. If you are interested in more information on Alan's role in that trial, he's discussed it at length in other podcasts which can easily be found using Google, and they're definitely worth seeking out. Without further ado, here's the interview. Thanks very much for joining us here, Alan. Um, really appreciate you coming along. So would you be able to maybe give us a brief introduction of yourself just to, to start off with?
1: Uh, okay, my uh, including title and everything. So I'm uh, Dr. Alan Williams. The job title is Reader in Sport and Exercise Genomics, and that's at Manchester Metropolitan University. So there, I suppose you could say I, I lead a particular research group. But yes, he's interested in the genomic basis of differences between people in, in what we can do physically, I suppose. Um,
0: so, would you maybe be, be able to give us a, a bit of a, a backstory for how you ended up in this? Because I, I sort of feel like it's quite a, a strange field. It sort of melds together a, a bunch of different things which don't traditionally hang together.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree in, in that there probably aren't, you know, even worldwide, there aren't a huge number of people in this area, although it, it is growing. So, yeah, my training you know sort of undergraduate degree and a master's and and phd really were in call it sport science you could call it exercise physiology both would apply and neither of them included any genetics so it was while i was completing my phd that i happened to be doing some work it was with the british army sort of on their physical training programs and um and there was we it just happened to be co-located with a with another research group from uh, university college london uh, from a department of cardiovascular genetics there and they were using the the military environment and the fact that there were just a lot of young people mostly men that were doing a lot of sort of running around all day sort of uh doing various tasks and doing that for about 10 weeks at the time and they were interested in some of the card uh, sort of cardiovascular responses and in some genetic factors that could uh, could influence those responses so uh, yeah just because we were co-located and I was doing other research in the army on their physical training and that for me that was a key moment to realize there was this there was this genetic world out there that we'd kind of covered and, and most even today most sort of sports science courses mention a bit of genetics but they really don't you know they say oh yeah well we know that genetics are quite important but we're going to focus on everything else. We're going to focus on the thing, on the training and the diet and stuff like that, all of which is really important. But, you know, we will just, but there's this other thing there. It's probably about as important as everything else you're going to study for the next three years or whatever it is, but we're not going to, we'll, we'll spend half an hour on it and then we'll move on.
0: Is there a reason why that hasn't permeated so much? So there is a bit more now. You
1: can imagine that the, the, what we do in our department um, that you know, has some obvious reasons. There are a few others I'm aware of but still i think most don't i can think of two, two kind of obvious reasons for that one is that you know you can't change your dna sequence so the focus mm-hmm. on the students in training is right you know what can you learn about how can you learn how to um, intervene and change someone's lifestyle perhaps to improve their whether it's sport performance or just their general health you know and those things pretty much revolve around um, training programs and, and management of diet so that's the one reason. The other reason, I think, is just that it just hasn't been done much before. And it all seems that, so that people that then become lecturers and so, tutors and so on, they've done the same kind of training courses before and they didn't do genetics then and they're not doing genetics anymore. So it kind of perpetuates itself, even though technology has moved on considerably in that area, much, much more than it probably has, in, you know, on the other side.
2: Well, would you describe this sort of research to the General Republic and what do you hope the outcome would be i mean if you don't want to improve someone's performance per se like with diet changes or
1: what are you looking for so ultimately that probably even for people like me that you know focus our research on the genetic side of it ultimately that that is what we would like to do is you know you can use words like individualize or personalize the interventions that you would give to somebody partly based on their genetic makeup so in principle this works it's much easier said than done though but but in principle you would uh you know personalize training programs so that you some people are going to respond better to uh, we we know that some people respond significantly better to some training interventions than other people so if we knew that beforehand rather than give the same hundred people the same training program why not give 50 of them the training program that they will respond best to, and then 30 of them, a different training program that they will also respond best to, and another 20 people, a slightly different training program. So each of them is getting the best return for their efforts quite quickly rather than trying a training program and then finding that they're not really responding very well to that and then trying something else and then maybe trying a third one as well. So that's probably what a lot of us want to do. But before that, it's more about... um, just trying to understand which are the genes that seem to bring about these differences.
0: Hmm. So so has this started to sort of move into actual practice within the sporting world then?
1: So to some extent, yes, but it depends Depends what you mean. It happens, probably on a fairly small scale. Uh, there have been a couple of sort of surveys that looked at these things. and Most people in elite sport, for example, say that they have um, not been uh, subject to any kind of genetic testing. But, but there are companies out there, you know, commercial operations that um, that will certainly offer people uh, genetic tests that supposedly will um, inform them about the kind of thing I was talking about, what kind of training program is most suitable, um, also about aspects of diet, uh, whether they respond well to caffeine or, or not, and things like that. And they certainly have customers. Most customers, I think, more just the individual person who wants to, looking for a sort of a little boost to their their kind of fitness program or something like that. But um, some serious um, sporting teams have engaged in that, shall we say. Um, Well, I I don't believe many have continued with that for a period of time, probably because they didn't get uh, sort of obvious results.
2: Okay, so it's still in the early stages, in other words.
1: Yes, and if anything, a bit controversial, as in most scientists like myself, occasionally try and call out some of the companies that, that offer these things as saying, look, the science doesn't really support that. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. So you, you talk a lot about like tailoring a program specific, depending on your genes, but all, there are also like, genes that generally predispose you to success a sport or to make you good at specific sports. Is there such a thing? Yes.
1: Yes. Um, I should pre- preface everything I'm going to say by saying that there's the amount that we don't know is much much more than what we think we do know that's an important point but yes uh, there there's probably a comment if I understood your question pro- properly then there's probably both of those are true as in there are probably some variations in some genes that that would be good baseline uh sort of biological support for adaptation in general so good good, um, mechanistic things within the cell that will produce proteins when asked to do so but not not necessarily of a particular type Mm -hmm. and then there are other variations in other genes that will then affect particularly the type of proteins that are going to be produced and maybe one you know to produce one protein might be more advantageous to adapt to one kind of tr- exercise training. So, you know, lifting weights, trying to grow muscle, something like that. Mm. Whereas a different version of the same gene, perhaps, then could be more helpful if you're trying to uh, respond to endurance type training, you know, sort of long distance exercise, that kind of thing. So some of the, the metabolic profiles that you would get from those different types of training um, require expression of different groups of genes so if you have the suitable genetic makeup in those relevant genes for this specific type of training then that can be helpful as well
2: does it mean they have people are going to have a different starting basis like sort of if you take two people and one of them has a gene that helps with uh, growing muscles will they be better at weightlifting even if both of the people have tailored programs
1: let me answer and see if i've answered see if i've addressed your point Uh, so there are probably the thinking is that there will be a number of genes that will influence someone's state whether they are doing any particular training or not Mm -hmm. So you know if they just live a normal life but without really directing their biology in a particular way by lifting heavy weights or, or running for long distances or something like that so some people you know if you had a group of people and they all just lived You know, an average type of activity had average type of activity in their life. Then some would be stronger than others, and some would have better endurance than others. Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, there would be probably another set of genes, maybe some overlap with the first set, but but certainly some different ones that then are about a, a response to a specific stimulus. So that stimulus then is lifting heavy weights or doing long distance cycling or something like that Mm -hmm. and so there would be a different set of genes that would do that pretty much
0: That's really interesting are there any genes that are particularly well characterized for their effect on sporting performance so for example you know is there any one sport which has quite a well characterized oh if this guy's got you know x polymorphism in this gene he's gonna be really good at speed skating okay so the one that has
1: the strongest evidence in literature, and it's one of the ones that some of those companies will test for, that I mentioned before as well, uh, among the others, um, is a gene called ACTN3, so alpha actinin 3. So this is a gene that codes for a protein that is found only in the fast twitch muscle fibres. These are the, fib- the muscle fibres that are particularly good for sprinting or jumping and uh not very useful actually for for doing long sustained endurance exercise. So the gene codes for the protein that you only find in those fast twitch fibers, and then there is a, a variation within that gene which is commonly found in the population. So it does vary a little between different ethnic groups, but in white Caucasian, for example, where most of the research has been done, then. Approximately 20% of the population, maybe a, a fraction or less, but approximately 20% of the population um, are carrying two copies of that gene that are, that are non-functional. So they, they do not make the protein. So actually they're missing a protein from those fast-twitch fibers. I mean, they, you know, they're perfectly healthy and uh, you know, they don't sort of limp around or something, you know, their muscles can work just fine, and some of them are are good sprinters, but they are missing that one protein and then there's about 30 well the other 80 percent all have at least one copy of the gene that makes the protein so that's the real division is between the 20 percent that can't make the protein at all and the 80 percent that can make the protein and then if you look at elite sprinters in uh, that's track sprinters you know running on the track but also some other sports I when mean, you mentioned speed skating in your question um they're also i think swimming as well then elite sprinters almost all of them um, have uh, are in that 80% group. Now, okay, 80% of people are in that 80% group, so they're not that unusual, but you would expect if, if this gene was having no influence at all, then 20% of them would also be in that group that can't make that, that alpha-actin-3 protein. But the, actually, the, instead of 20%, that value is probably at about 1% or less of elite sprinters who have that genotype so they are sort of missing that one protein does seem to limit the absolute best performance that someone can do so you know if if people are into sort of track sprinting or something if sub 11 seconds for females and sub 10 seconds for males is is you know really very good you know very high level standard then I, i'm not aware of anybody being tested that is of the genotype that cannot make the protein. So everyone who is in that category and even a little bit slightly slower than that as well, but still very good sprinters, um, they all carry at least one version of that gene that can make that protein. So it just seems to, it seems to do a couple of things. If you're interested, it seems to probably slightly enhance the actual function of the muscle fibers. So probably makes them slightly more rigid and able to transmit the force that they produce. Uh, but it also probably plays a um, a signalling role in in the in the actual development of those fibers in the first place. So they have slightly more of those fast twitch fibers that are good for those sprint events, and they probably function a little bit better as well. So gaining two things.
2: So um, if if you don't have that protein, if you don't produce that, you can still sprint, like you can do everything you want, but you're probably not going to be among the best, among the elite ever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that summarizes it exactly. Yes, yes. So you could still be, you know, I just some my research, and a former rugby player, for example, rugby union. Then, so even the fastest rugby union players, you know, on the play on the wing, uh, it's probably a little bit more difficult for these people who are lacking that protein in mm-hmm. that twenty percent, according to this genotype, to be to to play those positions on the field, mm-hmm. be the fastest players, but still possible. Because they're not at the real elite end of human performance, or you know, which, which track sprinters uh, would be, for example.
0: Okay. How do you go about finding a gene like that? Yeah. Okay. So,
1: I'll, if if I can break my answer into two bits. So, if one for something that is much more easily measured, and there are uh, uh, and the, lots of studies doing, and, and the classic quality that is used for this is, is height because it's you know one of the easiest things you can measure of a, of a human body is, is how tall someone is mm-hmm. so it's been done in you know literally hundreds of thousands of um of people in lots of studies and and then over the last few years increasingly those data sets have been put together so you, you literally have hundreds of thousands of research subjects in that same published paper and then you do a a whole genome Scan so you, you, you're not starting with a particular idea of right. We think it might be this gene because it makes this protein. You're looking across the whole genome um, and saying, okay, well, what will the data show us about which genetic variations are important for being taller, for example, or for being shorter? And that and that's a successful approach. It's it's not easy. It's very difficult. It takes a lot of funding, a lot of effort, and a lot of uh, number crunching, of course. Um, but it's successful. In elite sport, well, first of all, by definition, if you, have, if you talk about elite sport, you don't have hundreds of thousands of elite athletes because that's that's an oxymoron; that doesn't make sense. So you, you know, it depends on your definition of elite. If elite are medal winners in the Olympics, then you know maybe a few dozen living at any one time in one event. If you say, well, making an Olympic team, then you've certainly increased the number, but you still might only have a few hundred. So the research approach has to be different. And it's limited because the best way is to do it on that extremely large scale. So, what people like me do, we partly sort of piggyback on the research that goes on in the large on, on the larger scales. So, if people are doing research into sort of proportion of body fat that people carry, um, they do that with very large studies, and then we're interested in a particular in, in athletes and the percentage of body fat that they have. Then, the only option we have is to use the genetic variations that have been identified already in those larger studies in the general population perhaps and then test a specific hypothesis in our athletes as to whether that variate, whether that association between the genotype and the phenotype the thing that, that we're measuring uh, the, the body fat for example whether that still exists in the athletes so by doing that We are limited because we are less likely working in sport and exercise, or or it is more difficult for us to come up with a completely new association between a gene that no one has really associated with this quality before. Because to do that, yeah, really you need many thousands at least of people in in your group. I mean, I should say that that is what we are trying to work towards. Not a quarter of a million, for example, um, elite athletes, but we are trying to coordinate our work so that we have a few thousand athletes who have been quite well characterized and then we can at least move towards that point where we can um, not just look at genes that have been looked before in other contexts but we can actually find some new associations which might be different of course in the athlete population than in the general population that's part of the point as well.
2: Do you use old data sets? So can you basically, data sets you collect now, can you use them in 20 years and add them to the data sets you collect then? So get a bigger yes. data set?
1: Exactly. Yes, yes. Because if our characteristic of interest is something like, uh, you know, running 100 meters in a particular time or
0: mm.
1: being in an Olympic squad in a particular sport or something like that, then yes. R- with some small variations, you know, if someone was in that squad uh, 20 years ago, there's not a lot of difference between, this, between a squad then and squad 10 years ago or squad now or in another 10 years. So, yes, we can accumulate people as time goes on in that way. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that, you know, it doesn't really matter if we're looking at purely DNA sequence, then it doesn't matter when we collect the sample because that that is stable, of course, and doesn't change during life or not doesn't change relevant for
0: our work anyway. Are athletes generally happy to submit their genomes for, for a genome sequencing, or is it sort of a bit controversial? Yeah, um, in our experience, um, then yes, they have been very willing. I mean,
1: maybe that's a partly a result of the assurances that we give them, as much as anyone can, that this will be, you know, that the data will be stored confidentially and safely and, you know, not shared with third parties beyond that that they read about in the information sheet you know and that they get explained to them uh verbally as well so yes we've had i mean for us uh the difficulty if i can put it that way or the challenge has not been when we get to the individual athlete level that they are almost completely just a few exceptions uh willing to participate um the challenge for us is getting sometimes getting access to groups of athletes in the first place because they often have managers and sports scientists and coaches and so on and they were you know they want to know well who are you guys coming in here what do you want from our athletes what's going what's going to happen with the data or, or, or no we haven't got time for that and quite understandably yeah they've got they've got a game next weekend and that's that's what they focused on
0: are they worried that you're going to clone the the sporting athletes
1: <laughs> in the same way that you have just asked me with a smile on your face whether we're going to do that then yeah we get asked that by someone with a smile on their face and and then just a little look just to check that, that we're not really really going to do that
0: yeah is there any genes that predispose success in rugby specifically
1: so we yeah so over the last few years we've published a few papers just i think I think the first one was only five years ago, so we actually started with ACTN3 that I mentioned, and I was talking about the playing positions and uh, those playing on the wing and the fullbacks are typically the fastest players in the team, and, and they seem more likely to carry the version of the ACTN3 gene that that we also find in elite sprinters and so on. So that that makes sense. We have a published on a, a small handful of others. One of them is in so again another gene that's very widely studied. In non-athletic populations, is the FTO gene, so it stands for fat and obesity associated. It seems to, um, in the general population, uh, the data are very solid that it uh, affects um, body mass index, so you know, and and probably body fat as well, percentage body fat, in the sense that if you are of one genotype, in this case, it's the AA genotype, and versus the other. Uh, the homozygote to so the other extreme, the Tt genotype, the average difference in body weight between those two is about three kilograms in the general population, which is actually reasonably large for a for a genetic variation of polymorphism that that is co- that is common very quite commonly found in the population. So about three kilograms <clears throat> on average. So, um, when we, if you know anything about rugby, you, you ask about rugby, um, then you know, you've, the, the major division of players in rugby union is the forwards and the backs, and then there are other divisions within those. But typically, the forwards are traditionally, at least some variations to that now, uh, traditionally bigger and heavier, and probably a bit fatter, um, just a bit. And traditionally, the backs are uh, certainly leaner and sort of for them more important to be good at sprinting and changing direction and things like that. Um, we found that the um, genotype associated with being slightly leaner, less body fat, but probably slightly better muscle function, we we looked at that actually in a subgroup of of our study, was found in the backs. And the genotype associated with with, um, being slightly heavier and slightly fatter, probably, was found in the forwards. Um, So not a great surprise, but it's nice to see it play out in in reality as well. So, I, I mean, I like rugby as a as a vehicle for this because the playing positions that players end up in a lot of that is done at a very young age when people are in school and, and they sort of you know when a coach is looking at a bunch of young people on a pitch they say oh you're quite fast you go over there and well you're a bit heavier and slower you, you try being a prop over here or something and so obviously they're doing this in complete ignorance obviously of um of energetic Characteristics, but
0: that is partly what they are doing. That's really interesting how how you end up having these tiny changes in your genes and it ends up playing out in a big difference in your life. That's really cool. Are there any others that are easy to tell like that? I mean, that sounds like one of, an obvious example. And as you mentioned, height, you know, earlier, that's that's quite an obvious thing to pick out from a crowd.
1: I don't know about easy to identify, but in terms of um elite sport, as well as being able to Perform well. Well, one to be able to perform well, you, you, everybody, whatever they, however genetically gifted they might be, needs to train hard as well to be really successful. And to train hard, uh, yes, you need to put in the, the effort, but you also need to have some you call it luck. But you, you also need to have some ability to do that really heavy training load. You know, really, really intense stuff, big volume of this, and sustain it for months and months and years and years. And a lot of people um, find that they can't do that because they don't, they, they, they get injured. Uh, they don't recover quick enough to do another training session and then, then maybe they break down with injuries. So certain tissues, you know, whether it's muscle tissue or in particular ten, tendon and ligaments, but probably tendon sort of ligaments more if in sort of particular moments where they, they get injured. But in terms of, but tendons, that heavy repeated training load, um, is unsustainable for for some people and and others can cope with that. So there's been some research done uh, looking at the looking at tendon properties, extensibility of the tendon and its resistance to injury as well uh, has been examined. in Some studies and then we've looked at that. So our thinking was that of that was that if, if we look at uh, very successful athletes and including rugby players, um, if we look at them. Then we thought, would we expect, you know, so, so they, they get they get a lot of tendon injuries, but is that because they are genetically susceptible to getting those tendon injuries, or this is what we thought that actually they're probably genetically resistant to getting tendon injuries. It's just they're doing this heavy training all the time. So actually, being genetically resistant to getting those injuries is probably advantageous for them and probably has helped them get to that level so despite the injury prone environment that they are in they are managing to just about sort of get away with it and manage to do the training and and still perform and not break down before that stage where other people will have done so some of those genes involve collagen so there are various collagen proteins that are that make up the complex of the tendon tissue so we've looked at some of those, um, and it seems to follow through. The variations in those genes that other studies have shown provide some resistance to getting tendon injuries, we find those are more frequent in elite rugby players than in the general population. Um, so even though they get a lot of injuries, they're actually more resistant to it. They are the some of the few who can do that volume of training and, and still perform after it as well.
0: Yeah, great.
2: Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So, there is some rugby players who don't have these genes who who don't have that resistance to tendons. So, in to what degree can you overcome genetics with training, nutrition, environment, etc.?
1: Yes. Uh, So, yes, there are certainly some in in terms of the relatively small number of genes I would say that that we've looked at in relation to injury. There, yeah, certainly some elite rugby players are, in fact, carrying the versions of these collagen genes that you would associate with a higher risk of injury and yet still they are elite players so yes it's not a perfect um association you know but mm-hmm. but on balance if you look at the percentage yeah. uh, but uh so yes then there are things that um indeed can be done to uh you know but you modify your training you you sort of um so in people that the, the classic approach of people working in sport uh, of physiotherapists and other sort of strength and conditioning experts then they will uh, even without any genetic knowledge if there is an individual who seems to be more susceptible to certain types of tendon injury then they will um, there are probably a couple of things you could do uh, they do which is, which is partly sort of lower the overall load that that they are exposed to, the training load, maybe even the number of matches that they play, competitive matches, they might even reduce that to try and stop, to hopefully uh, sort of prevent them from getting injured or or not too often anyway. Um, And the other thing that can be done, I think, so words sometimes used is prehabilitation. So rehabilitation is what you do after an injury Well, prehabilitation is what you do before. So if someone is perhaps susceptible to a particular type of tendon injury, then then there are specific exercises, very isolated exercises that one could do, maybe for the Achilles tendon or something like that, Mm -hmm. designed deliberately to to strengthen it or stiffen it or something like that. So that is done at the moment and is done in response to a history of tendon injury. Mm -hmm. So if the genetic idea, after more research needs to be done, but the idea would be that you would identify those individuals before they get it, not wait for them to have a series of injury, or, oh, now we need to do the, the prehabilitation with that person, that you would identify that before they have a series of injuries and on the basis of genetics, and then intervene earlier and probably more successfully. Because even if once someone has had a series of tendon injuries, even with careful management, it's more difficult to keep them injury-free than if you than if they hadn't had those injuries in the first place so that's the one of the potential applications again is, a, is about um, trying to manage injury risk across a you know a, a squad or a team or something like that partly based on genetics to, to try to reduce the overall injury load for a sports team and in some teams of course like you know like professional football you know the injury burden you know you economists will, will add up how much it actually costs you know because because if you have more injuries then how much of that investment is not being returned on the pitch then they have to increase the size of their squad have more players to, to cover yeah. those things so there are some huge numbers involved there so there's a prize for the, for the people in sport if they want to um, pursue that
0: yeah I can imagine so moving back a little bit to the Olympics, how can you see the future of high performance sports being changed with regards to our knowledge about genetic advantages? So, you know, for example, are we likely to see handicaps and things like this being in place for athletes without genetic advantages?
1: Uh, I like I like the question. Um, so the short answer is no, I don't think so. Because um, so, uh, you know, Traditionally, sports or most sports, um, maybe not even all, but most sports traditionally have two categories: you have uh, male and female, and then in some sports, like boxing, for example, you might have bodyweight categories as well. Mm-hmm. So you're still divided by by sex, and then and then you've got bodyweight categories, and that also applies to lesser extent to things like rowing and and things like that, where you have sort of uh, sort of open category or heavyweights, and then and the lightweight rowers as well. So I think. If to, as you say, sort of idea of handicapping or, or, or sort of having different either different categories or handicapping according to genetic characteristics beyond the existing categories, uh, sort of body weight, sex, and also age as well, if you think about that, sort of, you know, younger people and also master athletes, older athletes compete in separate categories. So beyond those divisions, I can't see an application of genetics um, in terms of handicapping individuals. But the division, the major division in sport, in most sports between men and women, then if you think about it, that is a genetic one because that's pretty much down to the existence or not of the Y chromosome in individuals. So XX for female and XY for males. And you might well be aware that that that, that distinction based on the XX and XY uh karyotype um is uh works 99.9 percent of the time but occasionally there are some individuals who don't neatly fall into that category and then they have some quite complex interesting genetics quite different to what we've been talking about until now actually uh sort Mm -hmm. of these are rare mutations then that, that can affect quite fundamental things about their biology
0: I read about you you were asked to give evidence at the um, trial involving Castor Semenya. Yes. Which I think is a, uh, it's still kind of ongoing trial. Um, I think she's appealing yeah. to the, the Court of Human Rights about the ruling. Correct, as we speak, yes. I, I, I think it's, so at
1: the moment, Um, I don't think it's a, I don't think the arguments being put forward are um, uh, scientific ones uh, about biology. It's more about human rights. But yes, there is definitely uh an on still an ongoing debate amongst scientists but this is where it, it certainly cuts across then to sort of ethics as well um and also policy making in sport you know all those things are sort of colliding in these um cases of Casmania, but, but but she's not unique of course you know there, there are other athletes in a similar situation and so, ultimately, it's not certainly not wholly genetic, but ultimately, the reason why the issue even exists is a genetic one, where some of those athletes have rare genetic mutations that are that affect certain parts of the biology.
0: And I think it, it is really interesting because this is not just necessarily a a question of genetics or of, you know, or of politics. It's a it's a mix of a bunch of different things. But um, yes. I wonder, do you think in the future we might see a kind of a, a Olympics where some of those traditional distinctions break down and we have instead you know people going up against their uh phenotype or I'm not sure actually if I've used the word phenotype correctly there <laughs> uh
1: yeah no I think, I think you probably have yeah um so I th- I think not at the elite level I think maybe at you know lower levels but still what you could call competitive levels I think that could come in um that could be something for the future I think I think at the elite level, it's, it's, so the idea of, so some people have proposed, for example, that instead of having male, female categories, that athletes should be um, put in categories based on some aspects, something that, you know, a phenotype that you can measure, you know, their their perhaps their body mass and their height or something like that, and then put all those athletes into one category, male and female competing together. Um, the reality is that in the vast majority of cases, if not all cases, that even when you um, control for differences in body mass, height, and even muscle mass, there are still inherent advantages in that men typically have over women. So, if you played that out sort of statistically, what you would probably end up with is either very nearly all um, winners. Uh, being men and no women winning medals that is that is the the logical conclusion from doing it that way even if you try, try to equate things like body mass and height the only way to have a more equal distribution between men and women would be to equate them on their actual sport performance but then that that almost doesn't make sense because that's the whole purpose of the sport is to find out who is the best performer so you can't go all the way to the actual event
0: that you are assessing.
2: Sounds like a very complex problem that I'm not sure there's a solution at all.
0: This is the thing I think people will be debating about this for, for quite a long time.
1: Yeah yes and, and unfortunately unfortunately I don't believe there is a way to make everybody content mm-hmm. you know with, with a solution it, it is extremely difficult.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah so I, I was going to ask some questions about genetic doping and I, I actually don't know almost a- anything about this but I, I was just wondering you know I mean, are there any forms of genetic doping that that, um, exist at the moment? I mean, you know, we we did a podcast about CRISPR a few weeks ago, and I imagine that probably hasn't even entered the conversation of of this yet. Um, But I was wondering if if there's any either regulations or discussions about this entering sport. Mm.
1: Well, you you might be surprised that I think think I'm correct in the year being 2003, when gene doping was brought into the uh, what's called the anti-doping code, sort of the Um, so there's a long list of drugs and other things that are not allowed in sport you know because they're considered against the spirit of sport or a threat to the health of the athletes and so on and gene doping was added as i say I i believe it was 2003 it was it was it was around then so people certainly um you know were aware of of this even then on the horizon they were trying to preempt it then um i think it's unlikely that elite athletes have done that i think it's on the other side, I think it's very likely that some non-lead athletes will have attempted uh, some forms of gene doping, which of course has a, quite a wide definition anyway, um, usually. So so it depends precisely what you mean. But yeah, I, I think it absolutely needs to be, um, in the short to medium term, I absolutely think, I'll, I'll explain why I said that in a second, um, I think absolutely think it should be regulated and controlled and people should be educated not to do this. Um, for all sorts of reasons, not least uh, you know, the actual sort of health potential health side effects of, of doing some of these things are they are potentially very large, you know, extremely serious, and so on. So, yes, I did just qualify what I said then by saying that, that in the short to medium term, shall I? Shall I just say something about the longer term? Yeah, uh, yes, please. I absolutely might be wrong in this, but in the long, longer term and I don't mean mean five or ten years, I mean much longer than that, it seems entirely um, feasible to me that uh, that a very large number of people will be doing some form of genetic modification for very good reasons to improve health and longevity and uh, you know um all the things that lots of other things in healthcare and, and the things that we do in, in society are, are trying to assist and try trying to achieve so um if I'm right in that eventually that becomes the case then it would be completely sort of irrational for elite sport to maintain its rules that that gene doping is, is uh, not allowed if you're going to compete because you you would only have a very uh, a minority of the population that might even be therefore be eligible for elite sport which surely is is not the point so um but yeah that's as i say very
0: long in the future probably but i again i think that's the logical conclusion so we're probably a few years away from the half man half spider long jump <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I think that's i think that's, that's right. cool I mean it is an interesting one because once you get to a point where it's almost unethical not to do gene doping, let's say, for instance, you know, if you if you find something that's protective against cancer, you know, you, you might want to give that to everyone in the population. But as you say, it then becomes much more difficult to say no one can have this, you know, this thing, which is very commonplace.
1: Yes, exactly that. Yeah.
0: Do you think it'll ever become commonplace to test people as almost a, a way of, you know, scouting them for potential sporting performance?
1: For their for their DNA sequence, you mean?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah,
2: yeah for their potential.
1: Yes, probably, but within but in a regulated way. So, so at the moment, I mean, you, so again, some of those companies that, that sort of operate in this space, you know, they will claim to be doing to, to be able to do that kind of thing at the moment, and and the reality is they almost certainly can't. Um, but as knowledge advances and and the, the, the usefulness of, of those of genetic testing be, uh, increases and and the, the um, accuracy of any predictions be, become better then arguably yes because and again it's always about so it's, it's quite easy to sort of say uh, to think oh well these, you know this is not what sport is about you know you shouldn't be able, shouldn't do that with young children for example but there are many sports that do lots of other tests with young athletes. Age seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, ten, eleven, twelve—any of those—a whole range of tests might be done at a at a Premier League football club or, or and many other sports as well um, to try and identify talent. So, and not everything they are looking for—they are, they are testing at the moment—is something that is that is trainable. So, what some they will look at, they will look at the height of the child of that age, and they will use a use a sort of an algorithm to you know a fairly well established one, quite simple sort of equation, I should say, uh, which to predict adult height and therefore predict whether they would be suitable for one type of sport versus another. Um, and that, and, and few people have, have a, a major ethical problem with that. So I think, to me, the distinction between doing that and they're all looking at some part of the DNA that also predicts height, only perhaps a little bit more accurately, then other than a slight change in accuracy, I don't see a major um sort of difference in in what is being done. There, I think it is a little different than if you if you are testing something that is more malleable, you know, more trainable, if you like, um because the argument would be, well, okay, you're testing something for genetic, but with with genetics, but there's certainly scope to improve that very same characteristic with training and, and diet and so on. So it's a little less clear then, but I think it's reasonable to in certain circumstances and certainly with as informed a consent as possible I think is uh, from the ethicists and bioethicists that I spoke to about this that they ultimately seems to come back to that all the time that that um uh, this shouldn't be done by you know a, a very powerful sporting organization just testing a lot of people discarding the ones they don't want <laughs> they ones that they do and then you know and, and then becoming and then perpetuating their own success as a result it should be more about the uh the consent of the individual and or their parent or guardian for such testing with uh being counseled beforehand about what is going to show and that hopefully that you know this will be useful to them to direct their own training or their effort. if this if a young person has ambitions of being a, a sports person in a particular a particular event then actually maybe it would be useful to, for them to, to sort of gauge uh, whether they are more likely to be successful in one or the other so I think if things are done carefully um, then in principle principle, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not not against it, where some people are just fundamentally against it. Mm. Uh, but at the moment, the science does not support that yeah. in any serious way.
2: It, it sounds quite complicated, because if you look at more malleable characteristics and then say, oh, they don't have that advantageous gene, so they can't do that, and it's kind of, it becomes a, a cycle, because you only allow the ones who have it at first, you don't give them the chance to change.
1: Yes, yes, quite, quite right. Um, and I think another problem is the potential that you know you might be telling I don't know ninety nine percent or more of young people that yeah uh, you know you haven't got the right gene. You no, know, and eventually find the the one in a hundred or one in a thousand that that you then select. So you know whether that's a good situation to to get to where you're sort of telling young people that they have zero or almost zero chance of success in a sport. That doesn't sound like a a sort of scenario i want to see either so there's that issue there as well
0: the, the pessimist in me feels that it might be unavoidable in some senses but i also wonder whether people would stand for it you know whether it really cheapens whether it cheapens it or improves it i, I don't really know because this is something that is already happening right this is something that nature is dictating at the moment you know and there's a, a, a selective pressure anyway from however that comes about i'm sure. People from richer backgrounds are more likely to become athletes because of access to being able to train and things like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's quite, it's quite interesting because a lot of these issues probably do exist in some way, but because we don't have the way to test for them or we don't know about them, they kind of, you know, it's, it's easier to ignore them. Yes.
1: Yes, I agree with that as well. Um, so I think some people perhaps naively think that, you know, the way, the way things should be is that that success in sport is entirely down to sort of effort and dedication that's put in. Yeah, it's, it's just not like that for socioeconomic reasons, as you, as you mentioned there, and quite heavily for genetic reasons as well. So if you put those two things together, you know, the, the that, that particular playing field, use that analogy, is not level and it has never been level and it never will be level. And the genetic side of it, as we've said, is already playing a role in those early selection procedures anyway even I personally can remember the first time ever I I didn't play at a high level of rugby but the first time I ever went on a rugby pitch I was put in a position and and, uh, straight away and um, I think by the end of that school year and I was still in I don't know I was probably about 10 or something then that school year some team members were selected for the the district squad and I wasn't one of fine. And, and I, I probably had a better player than some of those did eventually. But yes, it's not fair from that age either. And part of that was they were just faster than me or bigger than me or better able to change direction or whatever it was. Um, sport isn't fair. The idea that the sport being fair is, uh, is is naive. You can try to regulate it so it's reasonably fair. <laughs> I think is the best you can do. The antidote, things like that.
2: Yes, but effort and dedication should still matter. So... I think, especially more malleable characteristics, in terms of genetics, shouldn't really be looked for tested for because if someone has advantageous genes, it doesn't mean they'll be successful because there's a lot of
1: other things it takes. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure. I think I said, you know, sort of 20, 30 minutes ago that to achieve elite sport, you probably need almost in most sports you need a mixture of both. You need absolutely need that dedication to training. And then you need some, whether it's luck or genetics, whatever you call it, Mm -hmm. to do with being able to respond to that training well, better than than some other people, and also to not get those injuries that some other people will get when they do the same training. But absolutely, uh, totally agree with you that, uh, yeah, that dedication to training is important and essential in any sport that has a large number of people taking part in it. There are enough people there with reasonable enough genetic uh suitability for it that, that then those who train harder are probably going to do better than those who don't train so well uh, absolutely in terms of a percentage it's sort of percentage contribution of of the genetics versus everything else you know the training and everything else mm-hmm. it's probably around half and half if anything the evidence is a little bit more on the genetic side for elite mm-hmm. sport you know possibly sort of 60 40 in the favor of genetics That's when assessed across a population, of course. So it's slightly different. doesn't apply to that, you know, to any one individual. Yeah. It's a little different. But across a population, both are important. But if anything, genetics slightly more important. Still,
2: 40% is huge.
1: Absolutely, yes. Without that 40%, you have no chance. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, suppose that me and Patricia decided today we wanted to be Olympians. Do you think your fate is kind of set? From the, the point where you're in the womb? So, to some extent, so do, do you want to answer
1: specifically about you too? Which case I need, in which case I have a question. Like, you know, age, height, weight, what training do you do? Um, <laughs> any other
0: measurements? I walk to the fridge um, <laughs> three times a day. So, you know, it's, it's a flipping question, but I mean, you know, at what point do you think the DNA you're born with is, is somewhat prescriptive of whether you're going to be become a elite athlete? Yeah,
1: yeah. So, um, so if if you accept my you know summary of quite a lot of research by saying it's you know about 60% of the factors are genetic ones and about 40% of them are environmental ones which includes training and diet and so on then that 60% yes is determined at the moment of conception essentially in terms of in terms of the DNA sequence and actually if you think about even what goes on then during development in the womb and so on um, exposure to different levels of nutrients and hormones all those things are largely environmental so that 40% environmental side part of that is taken up by you know exposure to greater or lower levels of glucose or amino acids or testosterone or and so on uh, via the mother in, in development so the remaining bit from the training of the diet is actually probably a little bit less than that 40% because some of that environmental side has been taken up there So to some extent, yes, uh, things are determined very early. But I think it depends then, you know, what sport you're talking about. So if it's something that is relatively simple to do physically, simple to do, as in don't need particularly amazing equipment, and it's something that is done, you know, and the evidence of that is that it's done the world over. So, for example, sprinting and running in a straight line, then the genetic the importance of genetics in that is probably at at the slightly higher end again, even, even more, because so many people take part in it. So many people also do lots of, lots of training. It's accessible to people all over the world with very little equipment. Um, Then what you really have is this sort of pyramid and you're looking for the people right at the top of that very wide based pyramid and people right at the top have got many, many things in their favor. Yes. Dedication and training and sort of good mental attitude and all sorts of things but also some very good genetics if it's something that's a little bit less pure uh, and uh sort of physically and maybe a
0: and hesitantly i was going to say a
1: bit more skill-based uh so that you know or a little bit more technical let's put it that way more technical more sort of different types of equipment or, or facilities are required and that the base of that pyramid is much narrower so the chances that someone can achieve well if I can put it despite some of their genetics is probably a little higher for that but I just pause at the the skill bit because skill people think oh well skill it's just skill and technique and the ability to do careful physical movements but that's well you know that's what you train for that's not genetic genetic control things like height and weight and maybe your muscle fiber type and things like that In fact, the evidence is very strong that people's ability to learn new physical skills is very strongly genetic at around 70% from very well-designed twin studies. So uh, if you think, and actually if you think that through, to learn new skills, uh, you need to have very good, uh, you need to have expressed your genes in the right way, in the right kind of proteins that provide you the feedback visual proprioceptive you know what you can feel uh, while you're doing the sport and also the ability then to change those the structures that provide those the neuromuscular control Um, so the ability of those things to adapt to repeated training repeated practice to to really uh, get a skill developed well those things are also partly you know influenced by genetic, um, genetic factors so that I think that's the explanation for why when those classical twin studies are done, that even you know for very skill-based things, it comes out of around 70%, give or take.
0: It's quite staggering, yeah, that, just how, how much it affects. I mean, I hadn't even thought of things like skill acquisition.
2: You want to never know my change in that regard, because I want to think in terms of what's possible, I want to, what I want to do, you know, I'm not like, oh, I'm not good at this therefore I, I won't even try or can't do it.
1: Yes, so I, I respect that completely. I, I have these debates with my students sometimes. I deliberately sort of go down this road and, um, you know, I say, would, would you want to know? You know, and let's roll the science on a bit so we you know it really is more informative than it is at the moment. Mm-hmm. Would you want to know, I ask them, you know, if you have the potential to you know, to be an elite athlete in a particular sport or to learn new skills or to, you know, to develop particular aspect of fitness. Um And my non-scientific survey of my students is that it's roughly half and half, um as in, you know, of those who just say, no, I, I don't want to know, you know, I want to have... I think all possibilities are there. Mm-hmm. I personally fall into the other half where I would like to know what I would have liked to know when I was younger, what I would have been more suited for or not. And then I could have uh, acted on that information and or ignored it if I wish. But I, yeah, so personally I would from the other side. But I understand why you say that.
2: No, I would like to know, I think, in terms of illness, if I can do something to prevent certain illnesses, I'm more prone to that sort of thing, but not in terms of abilities, I think.
1: Okay. So, okay.
2: so be- even
1: though, I'm not saying it would be that, but even if you had been told, you know, correctly from the science, okay, mm-hmm. then that not, not with absolute certainty, but with very high level of probability. You know, if you had been told that you, you know, there was extremely low chance of you excelling in the sport of your choice, put it this way, would it have been better to carry on in the blissful ignorance that you would <laughs> of of the fact that you weren't going to achieve, or better to know earlier that you weren't going to achieve?
2: I believe in doing things against all odds sometimes, so. I would like to think that I would have wanted to continue or or anyway, and to try and to be like, no, this isn't the case.
1: I can still do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I totally admit that you might have been then fall into that, you know, even though I said the very high probability, you might have then been in that small percentage that, Perhaps despite the statistical evidence about the, those particular genes that you know you' achieved anyway. So that is a danger of the application of these things. I think if I can call it genetic counseling is a phrase that's used. So it's about understanding that this, you know, that if anyone ever says these things are absolutely perfect predictions, then they're probably lying. Mm-hmm. But maybe understanding that these are probabilities, and that always leaves room for different outcomes ultimately. But yeah. then so people are told that beforehand Then they can exactly, as you're saying, they can make decision about whether they wish to have information um, uh, or not at a particular age. So mm-hmm. I would have chosen it if you would have chosen not to. That's fine. But at least you would have known what it is you are choosing
0: not to learn about, if that makes okay. sense.
2: I think so. Yes. Yes, it does.
0: Okay, so very last question. A big question that we kind of ask everyone at the end is just, if you had one piece of advice for someone who wanted to be a sports scientist or a sports geneticist, what would that be? What what was the one that you wish you knew when you were younger?
1: Wow, yeah, good good question. I wish I knew. So sports science, um, particularly in the UK, sort of the major professional association for sports science in the UK makes a big point of the importance of getting some education in the three key disciplines in sports science uh, which are physiology which is mine psychology and biomechanics um, so they make a big point of that and I agree with that to some extent but if someone was very sure that, that, that you, you mentioned sport genetics so that was a particular thing but that's where they would want to get into then you know Genetics itself without the sport bit is is, is, is obvious here, you know, a huge area that is so moving so rapidly that um, everyone has limited bandwidth and, and perhaps getting in early to um, real um, fundamental genetics and molecular biology training with an, with a sort of application to sport and exercise in mind would be a good route to go rather than perhaps, and I'm almost going against my sort of my home discipline of sports science, rather than doing that sort of multidisciplinary approach with the physiology, the biomechanics and psychology, and even the physiology, probably not too much genetics, depending on where you go as a a student.
0: Would you suggest if someone wanted to go into your specific field and, and not, you know, sports science broadly, that they might be actually better off potentially doing something in a kind of biological science or... Yes, I think so.
1: So yes, I think on balance, I think so. But the, the deep understanding of the sport, and that's why um, the sort of sports scientists are recommended to do training of psychology and and so on, because when, when you do come to them to speak to athletes, interact with them, do research with them, try and uh, conduct your practice with them and their coaches and the sports scientists that are supporting the athletes and the coaches, um, you know, you need to be able to speak their language and understand the way that they take, habits, you know, how they work and what they're interested in. And they're not interested in doing fundamental research just to advance knowledge and, you know, it may do something in 50 years. They're more interested in, in what can be used now or is there something, a small part of what you're doing now that can be of interest to them, to them now? So, yes, it's still appreciating that as well. But But, yes, on balance, I think, for the sports genetics future, the emphasis is a bit more on the on that genetics and molecular biology and the bioinformatics that goes with it and, and those kind of things, yeah.
0: Fantastic. Okay, well, yeah, that, I mean, that's amazing. I feel you're kind of happy. I think we can maybe wrap that up here.
1: Yeah, sure. That was Thank good. You Enjoyed time. it. Thank you. Thank you, Raph.
0: That's the end of the interview. I hope you found it interesting. I know I certainly did. I think the question at the end is one that I'm going to be pondering for a long time, about whether you would want to know about your genetic predispositions. I don't know what I would choose. Do you? We just want to say a big thank you once again to Alan Williams for joining us this month, and of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll be coming back with another episode in a month or so's time on the subject of why we enjoy music. That's going to be a real toe-tapper, so I hope to see you then. Until then, stay safe. Enlighten, a science podcast is created by Andrew L, Patricia Kloyhofer, Shan Zhang and Ollie Higgins for CISMA. We'd like to thank the CDT-ISM for funding and support. The intro music for this episode was by Joseph McDade, and it's called Space is Invisible Mind Dust and Stars are But Wishes. Thanks very much. I'll see you next time.